Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. In this episode, we're taking you behind the scenes at Urban with our Structural Racism Project. This is our institute-wide effort to examine the systems, policies, and programs that underpin racial and ethnic inequalities in our country. And as part of that effort, Urban has invited a number of scholars and practitioners here to talk about how they bring the structural racism perspective to their work. This week, we're sharing our recent conversation with activist and data scientist Samuel Singyangwe. If you don't know his name, you definitely know his work. Sinyangwe worked with DeRay McKesson, Brittany Packnett, and other activists and researchers to create a database called Mapping Police Violence. It's considered the most comprehensive database of people killed by police in the U.S. since 2013. Sinyangwe is also a co-founder of Campaign Zero, an effort to end police violence. He'll talk about both projects in the conversation you're about to hear, moderated by Nancy Levine and Cameron Okeke of the Justice Policy Center. I'm Cameron Okeke. I'm a a research analyst in the Justice Policy Center and a huge fan. Um, <laughs> um, so uh, pardon me if I like if I get a little flustered. But um, essentially, what we're going to be doing is we're going to we're going to have like a little bit of conversation. I'm asking some questions. Uh, we're also got some Q and A. I know people have lots of interesting questions. Um, but I want to ask you a lot about your research and a lot about advocacy. But kind of before we get to that, I want to know a little bit more about how you got to Campaign Zero, how you got where you are now. Yeah. Um, so. For me, this work really began on August 9th, 2014, when Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson. Um, you know, his death sparked this movement that really uh, spread all across the country. Uh, and in those early days and weeks and months of the movement, uh, there were some fundamental questions uh, and challenges that communities were posing to pol policymakers, to police chiefs. Um, and those challenges were that, number one, the police violence was an issue that was directly impacting them, impacting people that looked like them, impacting particular communities, particularly black communities. Um, and whenever you, activists and protesters and organizers uh, would make that case, they would get shut down by policymakers and by police chiefs who, and academics who would say, you know, where is the data to substantiate your claims? Um, and they would do this knowing full well that the data didn't exist because the federal government, even to this day, doesn't collect comprehensive data on people killed by police, let alone uh, all the other ways in which police violence takes place, ranging from you know, use of force, tasers, sexual assault, what have you. Um, and that continues to this day. You know, we have some national level like, survey data, um, but nothing in a jurisdiction level that's really meaningful for communities to use and hold their policymakers accountable. Um, and so, you know, watching that happen, I was actually working at PolicyLink at that time, and my work was, was very different. It was at the Promise Neighborhoods Institute, um, and we, we did partner with the Urban Institute uh, around some of that work. Um, and doing that work, it was, it was like night and day, because when you're in the space of uh, addressing issues like poverty and, and education reform, there is a rich literature out there. Um, there are a range of evidence-based solutions across the life course. Right? And so uh, you know, that was the background that I had going into this work, um, understanding things like results-based accountability, right? where you identify the goals and the results you want to achieve, and you look at the data to identify how you're making progress along those goals, what solutions need to be implemented, and you hold all actors accountable uh, to getting the results that you desire. Um, all of that requires data. 
Uh, and in the space of policing, all of that was absent. It was reliant on um, the individual stories and experiences, the lived experiences of communities that were being dismissed by policymakers, and then the assumptions of policymakers and police chiefs that were sort of overriding those things. Uh, assumptions about criminality of people who are being killed by police, assumptions about um, the the reasons why police use force, uh, that they are you know, in dangerous situations, encountering dangerous individuals, and therefore have to use force to defend themselves and others. There's sort of a script that they've developed around this. None of that has any data to support it, but yet it's sort of taken as fact by policymakers. It's taken as fact um, by people who have the power to actually do something about it. Um, so around that time, uh, 538.com did a, an incredible uh, investigation of two crowdsourced databases. One was fatalencounters.org and the other is killedbypolice.net. Um, so while everyone's talking about the federal government doesn't have this data, um, they profiled these two databases. And between those two databases, they were literally just spreadsheets online. Um, some two different groups uh, started. Really, two guys woke up every day. That a system of Google alerts, where uh, whenever things like officer-involved shooting, police shooting, keywords came up, it logged that, and then they entered that into the database with the link to the article, usually a local news article, um, the date of the incident, uh, the gender of the person killed by police, and the name. Um, and in some cases, race in about 40% of cases. Um, so these spreadsheets just sort of existed online, but nobody had merged them together because each had unique entries. Uh, nobody had filled in the gaps around race because 60% of the, the data did not, was not coded by race. Um, and nobody filled in the gaps around the, whether the person was armed or unarmed, let alone all of these other things uh, that are a part of this equation, part of the questions that are being raised. Um, and so that's the work that I did was uh, pulling those two databases together, merging them, uh, finding other data sources uh, to add in. So things like uh, looking at criminal records databases, obituaries, social media profiles, um, data from police departments to help identify the person who was killed by police by race, to identify whether the person was armed or unarmed. Uh, all of those types of things came together into the Mapping Police Violence Database. Um, and what was so interesting about it uh, was that he, at that time the Human Rights Data Analysis Group did uh, a multiple systems analysis where they looked at uh, the two uh, federal databases, I think one was the CDC and the other Bureau of Justice Statistics, um, and they, they looked at the level of overlap between those two databases. Uh, and in doing that, they were able to estimate the total universe of people killed by police that were not captured by either database. And their estimate was about 1,200 people are killed by police each year. Um, in our database, we were able to, in merging all of those things together, filling in those gaps, we were able to identify uh, about 1,160 people killed by police each year. Uh, so almost the entire, you know, almost that full estimate. Um, and that's the database that we launched with. So around that time, I connected with activists on the ground in Ferguson. Um, and together we, we built this platform at Mapping Police Violence to really help people make sense of the data, to understand it, uh, and to use that in their advocacy because it's mm -hmm. one thing to just have a data set or a database, um, but this, this was impacting people's lives. These were answering real questions uh, that the country was grappling with, and so we tried to figure out how to visualize that data in a way that could directly respond to those questions. Excellent, wow, that's, that's incredible. Um, I guess kind of on that same um, lens, how does, the, how does the work with, happening, with the Mapping Police Violence Project relate to the greater goals of Campaign Zero? So it is a, a database that informs our understanding of solutions. So you know, step one really was identifying the scale of police violence, right? How many people are killed by police? Uh, what are some of the racial disparities there? Um, and then really diving deep, when we, when we looked at the 100 largest cities in the country uh, and the rates of police violence uh, within those cities, we saw that there was a lot of variation. 
that there were some police departments that were killing people at extraordinarily high rates. So for example, a black man in St. Louis is about twice as likely to be killed by police uh, as the average American is to be killed by anyone, civilian or police, about twice as high as the U.S. murder rate. Um, you know, in Oklahoma City, about one in six homicides are committed by police. Um, so that was sort of the upper end of the spectrum. And then at the, at the other end of the spectrum, we saw cities where there were very low rates of police violence relatively, and some cities where police were not killing people. And so something was explaining this variation. And so we, we sought to understand what that was, right? So we looked first off at some of the common explanations for it, things like, uh, like crime rates, for example, is sort of the most common thing. When you hear from the police side of the story, they're saying that you know, police are using deadly force because they're encountering violent criminals and they have to defend themselves. Um, what we found was actually that uh, there wasn't a whole lot of, of uh, uh, correlation between those two variables. That there were cities with incredibly high violent crime rates that had relatively low rates of police violence. Cities like Newark and Detroit actually have relatively low rates of police violence. Um, and then there were cities with very high rates of police violence that had pretty low rates of, uh, of violent crime. Orlando, Florida is consistently at the, at the highest end uh, of police violence in the country. It is not the most dangerous city in America. Um, so something else was explaining what was happening, and so we, do we dove deeper to look into the policies and practices of the police department. Um, like with anything, when you think about you know, education reform, it's all about standards. Nobody thinks standards don't matter. Um, but when it, go when it comes to policing, somehow the, the conversation about what those standards should be uh, and how those standards relate to the outcomes that we're looking at gets lost. Um, so we requested the 100 largest police departments in the country, requested their use of force policies, their police union contracts, um, civilian oversight policies, uh, arranged, basically audited the system in each of these jurisdictions uh, to establish the relationship between those rates of police violence and the policies and practices governing how and when police can use force. Um, and what we found was that there was a significant co correlation, there was a significant relationship that um, police departments with the most restrictive use of, use of force policies were the least likely to kill people. Um, and that very few police departments actually had sort of what was considered the best practice recommendations in place. Um, things like requiring de-escalation or requiring officers to exhaust all other reasonable means before using deadly force. Um, you know, restricting shooting at moving vehicles, requiring a verbal warning before shooting someone, really basic things. Mm -hmm. um, on each of those indicators, you know, one in three of those 100 police departments would have any one of those given policies. Uh, and all of them correlated with uh, lower <coughs> rates of police violence. Um, so, so that kind of analysis informed Campaign Zero. Uh, really taking an e a evidence-informed approach where we are identifying um, the result that we want to achieve, which is ending police violence using this indicator of uh, killings by police as the metric, because that's what we have the data to have. Um, and looking at what are the policies and practices that are associated with, with reductions in police violence, and then how do we scale those across the country. Uh, and so Campaign Zero is a 10-point policy platform uh, that includes those recommendations, as well as um, you know, where we couldn't get data on some things, there, was, there were some groups that had, uh, had done some research as well. So uh, looking at the Police Executive Research Forum, which did some research on uh, police training policies and found that you know, the average police recruit gets 58 hours of firearms training, but only eight hours of de-escalation. Um, you know, why isn't that the reverse? Um, you know, things like that helped to inform Campaign Zero. Um, and then I think the last piece, which is really important, is making sure that, that we are uh, being responsive to an, and uh, directly accountable to community organizations and community activists and protesters. Um, so early on, we launched the demands.org, um, which included the demands from protest groups across the country. It was a national sort of clearinghouse of all the demands of the, of the uh, different local organizing groups uh, and Black Lives Matter chapters, other organizations. 
Um, and so that also informed the platform. What are the things that communities are demanding? And then, then looking at that, matching that against the evidence about what around what works and building and synthesizing all of that together into one platform that made it very clear how we can get to significantly reducing police violence in this country. Yeah, that's, that, that's incredible. Um, I guess one of the, one of the, one of the difficulties that I, I, I think of a lot when I'm doing research um, and advocacy um, and trying to figure out where the line lines between the two. And so I know that Campaign Zero does, like, creates this information and then tries to execute it, right? You create a database and you're like, this is a problem. Now we want people to change that problem. Um, but often there's um, uh, questions about conflicts of interest, about how do you go about um, doing this research knowing that you're using it to make something happen. You're doing action-focused research. Um, what, are the, what are the challenges that you find with that about maintaining, say, maintaining the rigor of your research while also um, trying to execute real policy? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's a, it's a real concern. And I think, you know, what we have done is made everything public. I think one of the frustrations in this space um, when you think about research is that so often the data is not made public. The data set is not public. What's public are sort of the summary statistics the aggregated statistics. You don't actually get information about your particular jurisdiction, uh, which particular policies and practices are currently in place in your city, what the language of those policies are, what section in the policy document it is. All that's important for activists. It takes a lot of work and a particular expertise to identify those things. So if we're not making that clear and public for people up front, then we actually do a disservice to folks because we create more work for them to do. Um, so I think in part because of that and in part because we recognize that transparency is very important because of those concerns, um, all of our data is public. So, you know, for example, Mapping Police Violence, the data set is available for download on the homepage. All the individual, individually identifiable records, all of the fields, um, where the calculations were made that support the uh, statistics on the site uh, for, you know, our analysis of use of force policy, same thing, you can actually click on for any of these hundred cities, you can click on the particular city that you're in, you can see the specific policy language, the section of the policy, you can download the policy document, you can see where we did the public records request for the policy. Um, so all of that is, it, one, to make it easier for, for activists to use this in their work, but also because uh, it's important to be transparent about your work so that um, people can check it and verify it on their own. Um, without having to sort of trust that you uh, are, don't have a conflict of interest uh, around this work. Um, so, so that's sort of how we've approached it. Um, and I think that that has been, has been helpful because now we've seen other people use that research uh, and use that data set in their own research. So recently a, a study was done that uh, identified uh, a relationship between where people were being killed by police and other indicators of um, like residential seg segregation, um, other indicators of sort of structural racism, uh, which was really fascinating, right? And something that, that we wanna see more of, people using this data in their work, w whatever field they're in, I think there is a connecting point, whether it's health, uh, whether it is thinking about things like uh, housing and broader structural inequities, um, all of that can relates to this issue of police violence and needs to be in the conversation. I wanna ask a question about how you engage the community in the process of both, um, both like, uh, disseminating but also creating the information and also how you engage activists as well. Yeah, so, um, and I'll, I can give you a couple of examples. Uh, I think Baton Rouge is an example. Um, after Alton Sterling was killed, uh, we were invited uh, to Baton Rouge by the protesters there. And this was in the, in the days after. Uh, you know, my colleague Brittany and DeRay went to Baton Rouge 
Uh, they were on the ground there with the protesters, helping them develop uh, you know, their demands and, and you know, providing some of that data and research to help inform that process. Um, you know, there, there was like a high profile, Duray was actually arrested in Baton Rouge, which is like a big thing, um, but that's sort of besides the point. <laughs> um, and then, you know, after that, what, what we did in terms of co-producing content um, was help them come up with a, a paper. It was like a two-page document uh, that essentially audited the Baton Rouge Police Department. We looked at their data on use of force, uh, police shootings, uh, civilian complaints. Um, we looked at uh, your broader metrics of accountability uh, and looked at their policies and practices across the full range of those 10 categories within Campaign Zero. Um, and developed a very clear, as well as uh, doing an analysis of the actual Alton Sterling situation and those officers involved. Um, and sort of like when you think about what the DOJ does, uh, that's what they do, right? They come in, they do a comprehensive review of the police department's policies and practices, and then they recommend or require reforms. Um, and like we do that much more quickly and with less access. So like we have a two-page report, they have like a million-page report, and a lot of investigators. Um, but that's what we produced, and that then we met with, together with the activists, we met with the mayor of Baton Rouge um, and a number of other elected officials there and got them to commit to it. And actually, they did adopt a number of those policy recommendations uh, in early 2017. Um, so that's sort of an example of, you know, oftentimes when something happens, when an incident happens, when we're invited in uh, to a, a particular jurisdiction. Um, we are co-producing content with activists on the ground, community members, helping to synthesize that into something that is not only informed by you know, the particular jurisdiction, but that incorporates recommendations and data and a comparative analysis of other jurisdictions as well to help um, sort of contextualize what's happening in Baton Rouge uh, and then uh, help that advocacy, help in the advocacy as well, making the case for these types of changes. Sam, do you ever go back after the fact, after you've helped implement reforms, to see whether there's a difference? Yeah, so actually we are um, working on an a analysis right now that, uh, one, like we track these use of force policies in the 100 largest cities, so we know which cities have made reforms, which ones haven't. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what we are also doing is comparing that to the outcomes in terms of people killed by police and police shootings. Um, and what you find is that almost all of the departments that have implemented uh, one of the uh, specific sort of use of force reforms that we have recommended uh, have significant reductions in police shootings. Um, and so... How quickly does that happen? Uh, usually we see it happen the year after the policy was adopted. It takes a little um, bit of time. For yeah, because usually, and, and it depends, right, because you have departments that adopt it immediately and they train, retrain on it, and then other departments, you know, like in New York, um, where the police union has a lot of power and they sort of obstruct and delay throughout this process. Um, so it gets sort of held up in the courts uh, and then it takes a little bit longer. Um, but, but generally what you see is the departments that have implemented these things have had uh, pretty dramatic reductions, about 30% fewer um, police shootings. Um, and that's only, most of them have adopted one or two or three, right, of these recommendations and we have a, a whole bunch. Yeah. Um, but it, that's heartening to see. Mm -hmm. um, and. I think moving forward, what we are, are, are hoping to do is collect uh, a broader uh, range of data. So we're looking at all use of force. Um, we're looking at you know, the ways in which like, broken windows policing uh, impacts communities and whether that uh, is being uh, reduced. 
Uh, and that, of course, takes a lot of time. It's a larger data set and uh, requires a lot of money and cooperation from police to give you some of that. Uh, and in many states, they're not required to. Um, so that's another layer of challenge. Um, but that's where we're trying to go. I kind of have a, I have a question kind of about, about that, just so on about the, the fuel itself. So in what ways do you think, I know the work you do, you do like itself by virtue of working on police violence is a way of pushing against structural racism, but in what ways do you see structural racism playing out within the research realm? Um, whether it be in like funding or in the way in which we talk about it or talk about the issues? Yeah, um, <laughs> a lot of ways. So, so, yeah, where do I even start? So I think, you know, research is, is a start, right? Um, the fact that we literally had to build a field, like I'm like 27 years old, I had to build a field around what works in policing. You know how much money is spent in criminology? You know how many criminology professors there are? You know how many research institutions there are? You know how many billions of dollars are spent? You know how much money the police have? Um, and nobody, the federal government didn't even do it. Like, you know, that's wild. Like, that is racism. They didn't ever think to invest in identifying let alone tracking the outcomes, but identifying how to reduce police violence. All of this money is going into how do we reduce community violence using police, which itself is an assumption because there are a range of other approaches and interventions that reduce crime much more. Um, and you know, it was completely biased against anything that would actually research uh, how do we reduce police violence in a way, you know, which is sort of uh, similar to what we see with the NRA and gun violence. Um, where you know it's a hugely important issue. You know, with police violence, is 1,200 people are killed uh, a year. One in three people killed by strangers in this country is killed by a police officer. Um, you know, as I said, those rates in some cities in Albuquerque, it's uh, in 2014, one in three homicides were committed by police. It's a huge thing, um, and yet very little research, almost no funding from philanthropy uh, in this space. I think it's something like 10 million dollars a year uh, total. Um, so we had to operate within those confines um, and figure out how to get around them. Uh, so I think that's one piece of it. I think the second thing that, that I, I wouldn't say is necessarily structural racism, but it was a particular bias, um, was that the existing sort of uh, research infrastructure already had their sort of worldview about what was important. Um, and you know, I saw this in my, where I was working before, and I think this is sort of emblematic of, uh, in general, what happens, but you know, there was this, idea that police violence was just a function of everything else. So, you know, the police were killing people in black neighborhoods because uh, there were high poverty rates and because there was so much residen residential segregation and because the schools weren't working. And so we need to fix those things, but not actually do anything about the police. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, yes, we need to fix those things. And there's actually, you know, there's more money invested in fixing those things definitely than police. Um, but we also need to figure out how to stop the police from killing us. And yeah. that's what the community demanded. So we should be honoring that commitment uh, in our research. Um, so I think that was another piece that was sort of uh, difficult that we had to get around. Um, I think, you know, more broadly, when you think about the ways in which white supremacy uh, helps to frame particular issues. Um, so I think about two examples. One is the Ferguson effect. Um, and Number two is the study from, um, uh, from Harvard uh, around uh, the police shootings. Uh, and I'm forgetting the professor, I always remember the professor, but I'm sure somebody here knows who it is. Yes, everybody knows who it is, see what, see what I mean? Um, okay, so first one, uh, the Ferguson effect. So 
and I'll even backtrack before that, you know, level one is understanding the script of the opposition. So the police have a script. Everybody knows the script. Um, you probably can repeat, this would be an interesting study, but I, I'm sure by the time somebody's <laughs> like 10 years old, they can repeat the script. Um, the script is that you know, police use deadly force because they're in dangerous environments, encountering dangerous individuals. That's script number one. Number two is that any sort of reform uh, would either endanger officers or endanger the public by making crime rise. That's the script. Okay. Very little, if any, research substantiating any of that, but everybody knows the script. That's white supremacy. How did that script happen with no research? You, you think about how much research we have to do, we had to do, to even challenge that script. And then you realize that they actually didn't have to do any work to make that happen, uh, to make that the norm of our understanding. Um, so we had to challenge and, and debunk and, and sort of unpack each of those things, investigate each of those points. Um, the first around the, the connection with crime rates uh, I talked about earlier um, doesn't really play out. The second around reform, so this is the Ferguson effect idea. Um, this idea that if we reform police department policies, if we are calling for police accountability, that somehow that demand, the protesters demanding that will make communities, uh, I guess, emboldened to, I guess, attack police and commit crimes. That's, that's literally like the, the effect. Um, and they created this idea based on data from a handful of police departments. It was like Baltimore, Milwaukee, I think DC might have been in there. Um, literally like four or five departments that, had, that did have increases in, in violent crime. And so on the one hand, they had the increase in violent crime, which was you know, a year in by the time they said this, this was happening. So again, really pre preliminary, but they said it was happening anyway. Uh, and on the other hand, they had protests happening in these areas. And so they said, obviously, the protests are causing the rise in violent crime. And that was the Ferguson effect. Um, right, you had you know, FBI Director Comey, this is the Ferguson effect, you know, there's a chill wind in policing, you know, yeah, that guy. Um, <laughs> you know, you had police chiefs across the country saying this, you know, it became like a thing with very little research, very preliminary, no causation or correlation. Um, and then we learned that you know, a study came out looking at Milwaukee Police Department. And what that study showed was that after a high profile incident, incident of police violence, black communities in particular stopped calling the police because they didn't want to be abused by the police. We've seen all across the country, whether it's in Starbucks or in Waffle House, when you call the police, sure. they often end up brutalizing black folks. Um, so they stopped calling the police as much. And after they stopped calling the police as much, the violent crime rate rose, in part because people were having to deal with violent situations on their own instead of have, being able to call the police in. So actually what that shows is that police violence caused the increase in violent crime. <laughs> yeah. Not the protests, literally the police violence caused the increase in violent crime. Now why isn't that the narrative that everybody's talking about? Instead we hear about this thing called the Ferguson effect. Um, so that's sort of an example of how um, people with a lot of power uh, use their platform and use their power to make something a fact when in fact it is not, uh, and to actually obfuscate what's actually going on, um, which is much more damning about the impact of police violence. The fact that it not only impacts the individual who is killed or hurt by the police, but it destabilizes entire communities and increases crime, particularly in black areas. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's sort of one thing. Um, the second piece is around 
the danger to officers. So again, trying to deconstruct this narrative, right? We have the narrative about police violence being because of crime, not true. We have the narrative about uh, police violence or about protests to police violence leading to increases in crime, not true. And now finally, we have this narrative about any sort of reform to policing actually makes it harder for officers to defend themselves in dangerous situations and causes officers to be in danger, right? That's the, the third narrative. Now, no, no, no evidence at all behind that one. And what we found when we looked at the use of force policies of those police departments was that in those police departments that had the most restrictive use of force policies on how and when police could use force, officers were actually the safest. They had the fewest assaults on officers, fewest officers killed in the line of duty. Um, so this idea, and, and the departments that adopted these policies did not see an increase in you know, assaults on officers and officers killed in the line of duty. So there was literally no data to substantiate that claim. And yet that's the predominant claim that you hear mm -hmm. from police unions and police officials whenever a reform is discussed, is that you're putting our officers in danger, you're gonna make them second guess themselves, and they're not gonna be able to defend themselves. Um, so I think you know, as a research institution, we should be able to investigate the key claims that are substantiating the narratives that determine policy in, in, a, in a given field. Mm -hmm. um, and we have to know what those narratives are. And policing and criminal justice in general, it's very simple. It's always some variation of those things. Um, and there's not a lot of research that, you know, other than what I've just talked about, that really directly takes that on. Um, instead, it sort of takes that as, as an assumption, as, as, you know, something that's a fact and tries to work around it. But in fact, there's no data to support those assumptions in the first place. So that's our show. You can learn more about Samuel Sinyangwe's work at mappingpoliceviolence.org. And as always, please rate, review, and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was edited by Matt Johnson and produced by Vicki Gann. Our theme song is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team, this is Justin Milner signing off.